All right, good morning, everyone. Wow, so good to be with you here. Super, super grateful to the New York City Church for uh, inviting Kathy and I and Brandon to come and uh, spend the weekend with you. We had an amazing time uh, here in Manhattan yesterday doing one of our workshops. And uh, the night before, we were in uh, New Jersey getting with all the uh, teens uh, in that region. And we just had an amazing trip. So thank you so much. We feel the love. Uh, your hospitality is amazing. So we're really grateful to be with you here this morning. Uh, for those of you who don't know me, my name is Guy Hammond, and I'm the executive director of this organization here, Strength in Weakness Ministries. It's an organization I started about 10 years ago, just kind of as a side project, actually. I wasn't intending it and becoming very much. Um, I recognize that we as a fellowship, we're doing a really poor job in offering support and help to our brothers and sisters, the Christians who come from a homosexual background, but who are still living with unwanted same-sex attractions. I thought there's nothing there for them. There's nothing in place. A lot of the answers we give are very simplistic and not very holistic. And I thought we just need to do a better job here. And I thought certainly when it comes to talking to our gay friends and neighbors about Jesus there, I thought, you know, we really need to do a better job there too. There is a way to talk about the traditional biblical sexual ethic that upholds what the Bible teaches on sexual ethics, but also allows us to offer the love, mercy, compassion of Jesus at the same time. And Christian Jim in general has just run a really poor job of that. And I thought, so, you know, let me start a website, see if we can find a few people to help and kind of begin this journey and see where it leads. And so 10 years ago, in fact, it was 10 years ago this weekend, uh, I started the website. My initial goal was to find 30. I thought if I could find 30 Christians who are same-sex attracted, that would be amazing, 30. Uh, that was kind of like where my faith was at. And then, But we found 30 in the first week. And then it got past 100, and then it was 500, and then we were past 1,000. And so over the last uh, couple of years, you know, it's just growing and growing, and we're now helping thousands of Christian men and women of all ages, all demographics, uh, from 58 countries around the world. And the ministry got so big and fast, so, we, so big, in fact that we could no longer continue to do what we had been doing, which is I had been an evangelist of a church in Halifax, Nova Scotia, Canada, and we just couldn't do that anymore and do this. The volume of people contacting us, moms and dads and and siblings and and people struggling with this and evangelists and campus leaders, and we're like, man, we, we have to do something here. So we just stepped out on faith. We stepped out of the proverbial boat and started walking on some water and we quit our jobs. And, and, and I had an evangelist in Canada call me and he said, did I just hear you're quitting your job to do that strength and weakness thing of yours? I was like, yeah. He was like, really? Like, how much money have you got? I said, oh, we don't have any money. <laughs> he said, so let me get this straight. He said, uh, you're 50 years old. Yeah. Uh, you got wife and four kids. Yeah. A couple kids going into college. Yeah. And, uh, you know... You're going, you're quitting your jobs to do this ministry and you have no money. No. He said, are you crazy? Then I got really insecure because I just thought I was being faithful. But, you know, crazy, faithful, whatever. I thought God's just going to catch us, whatever it is. So we had no money and I, I, I knew we needed support, obviously. We got to pay the bills somehow. And so I just started going around to churches and saying, hey, here's what we're doing. If you can help us out, that'd be great. If not, we understand. But if it's the Lord's will, it's the Lord's bill. You know, he'll take care of it. And so one of the first places we came to was the New York City Church of Christ. 
And you're the first church that said, Guy, we believe in what you're doing. We've got your back. And so you guys have been and are going to continue to support this ministry. So I just want to thank you so, so much. When you give your special missions contribution and things like that, we're one of the beneficiaries of your kindness and generosity. So thank you so much. You may never know this side of heaven, those you're helping, but there's a lot of people around the world that you are impacting through what you're doing. So we're just enormously, enormously grateful. And uh, so this ministry, you know, as I said, is really taken off. But let me, you know, this is not the main point of my talk today. I'm not going to spend all my time talking about same uh, gender attraction issues or homosexuality or, or transgender issues. Although it was great to have Brandon here today. I'm so glad he was able to share with you. I hope you appreciate how special it was to have him here. Uh, Brandon, you know, of course, he runs uh, our transgender ministry with strength and weakness. And he's helping people all over the world. And so now he travels with me. He was with me in Seattle. He was with me in Miami. He, I mean, yeah, he's with me here in New York. And, and so churches are like, hey, guy, yeah, you yeah, you got an interesting story. Anyway, could we have Brandon come and speak? Because they're like, guy, you're boring compared to him, right? So anyway, I'm so glad he was able to get with all the singles yesterday and uh, have a significant amount of time with you guys. That's great. But anyway, let me just show you briefly what I, uh, the issue of homosexuality, but I said it's not, it's not the main point of our talk here together today, but I, I got to address it. What does the Bible actually say about homosexuality? You know, not a lot, actually. We only get five scriptures where the Bible talks about it in a really direct way. Now, there are other places in the Bible where it talks about it in more of a roundabout way. You know, the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, that kind of thing. But in terms of the Bible addressing it very directly, you know, these are the, the five main scriptures. That's not a lot to go on. Uh, however, there are some things we can learn from those five scriptures, even though there's not a lot. For instance, it's interesting to note that when the Bible talks about the issue specifically of homosexuality, it does talk about it in both the Old and the New Testaments. It does show us that from Genesis to Revelation, God's intention for homosexual, or for human sexuality is to not include homosexuality, and for that matter, any kind of heterosexual activity outside of the confines of marriage. Uh, it's interesting also to note that these scriptures here were written thousands of years apart written to different, highly different cultures, from the Hebrew to the Greek, uh, written to different languages, diff- different audiences. Why is that important? Well, because today I'll have people say to me, Guy, come on, you can't trust what the Bible says on the issue of sexual ethics in 2016. I mean, come on, this is 2016. These scriptures are written thousands of years ago to different cultures and different languages. I mean, this is a different world, different life now. But you see, when these scriptures here were written, between Leviticus and what Paul wrote in the New Testament, there's were thousands of years separating those scriptures. And they were written to different cultures. You see, all that does for me is solidify how God feels about sexual ethics. And the Bible makes it clear from Genesis to Revelation that sexual intimacy is to be reserved between that of a man and a woman bound together only in marriage. And anything outside of that is not representative of what God intended for human sexuality. It shows us, in fact, that on certain issues, and sexual ethics is one of them, these things supersede time and culture. And so, how God feels about sexual ethics uh, 2,000 years ago was the same then as it is today, as it will be 2,000 years from now. So it doesn't alter, it doesn't change. Now, I know that's not a real popular message today. I'm cognizant of the fact that a lot of people would say, we're absolutely crazy for holding to the traditional biblical sexual ethic. I get that. In fact, 
there's been times I've traveled around and I've been protested against and people have uh, yelled and screamed at me. And it, especially when I go uh, to uh, university campuses, that has certainly happened to me. I was at the University of Southern Maine uh, a couple of years ago. And the gay rights movement on campus heard that an evangelist from Canada was coming to speak about homosexuality and Christianity. And of course, they prejudged and assumed that I would be coming with a message of hatred and bigotry and say all these nasty things about homosexuals. What's my goodness, are you kidding? That's the farthest thing from my mind, my heart, or my message. And But they just assumed that that would be the case. And so, uh, before I got there, the gay rights movement on campus printed up t-shirts on them that said, don't listen to guy on them. And they started passing them out to all these students. And so even before I got to the event, all these students were walking around with these dumb t-shirts on say, that said, don't listen to Guy on them. Now, they had, had no idea who Guy was. They didn't know what Guy was going to say. They didn't even know why they were wearing this t-shirt. But they're campus students and they'll wear anything, right? And so, uh, anyway, it was really cool that night because, in fact, there was quite a few protesters and they were mad and angry and, ah, you know. And, but the Christians were really either strategic or very much like Jesus, probably a good combination of both. They thought, you know, with these protesters, what we'll do is we'll serve them. And so they made food. And so as we were going into the crowd, ah, I hate your guts. You know, it was like, hey, would you like a sandwich? Oh, thanks. You know, it's like, <laughs> right? It's kind of hard to yell at somebody when you got an apple in your mouth, you know? So anyway, but uh, don't listen to Guy. I hope you'll listen to me this morning. But uh, so actually, I decided to take that seemingly negative thing and turn it into a positive thing. And so I started a website called don'tListenToGuy.com. And I say to people, if you want to protest, if you want to tell me how much you hate me, if you want to tell me how much you disagree with my ministry and what is it I'm doing, I welcome your input and your thoughts and your advice. Thank you very much. Could you just please not come to me and tell me? Could you just go to don'tListenToGuy.com and gripe there, you know? And so I got tons of people going there all the time. And I would even say to you, if, if you disagree with what I'm saying this morning or you agree, that's fine. Please, it's not a sin to get your cell phone out and go to don'tListenToGuy.com while we're talking. Let us know what you think about our ministry, about what Brandon is doing, about what our ministry is trying to accomplish globally uh, as we try to have an impact for Jesus. Go to don'tListenToGuy.com and we'd love to hear what you have to say. This is the first email I ever got. You are disgusting. I hate you. Your stupid, homophobic, and bigoted ministry. I know where to find you. That's the first email I got. I was like, maybe I should take that website down. Anyway, I don't know what this means. I know where to find you. I don't know who wrote that email, but I was like, what are they going to do to me when they do find me? Like, you know, I'm not really sure. So anyway, I have personal security now, and it's, 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 it's all right. So I recognize that these issues, like the stuff that Brandon talked about today, or yesterday when he was with the singles or at that workshop, certainly our stance on, on biblical sexual ethics and my stance on homosexuality, I recognize these are complex Things. These are multifaceted issues, and I know they're controversial. Maybe to a large degree, not so much here in Manhattan. But trust me, when I'm like speaking in Idaho, when I'm down in Texas, uh, you know, there are a lot. Maybe it's, maybe it's a lot more controversial there. But I, I recognize that, you know, even emotionally, a lot of us feel differently on some of this stuff because it depends on where you grew up, uh, where, where your parents grew up, maybe different things that have occurred to you in the past. Maybe it's about friends and neighbors. Maybe you have a family member who's gay or, or maybe somebody's hurt you in the past, whatever. So, you know, it's an emotional issue and we all come at different places on this. I would think probably because I'm speaking at a church that most of us would agree with the traditional biblical sexual ethic. But maybe not everybody. 
There might even be people here today who do uh, represent the gay community. And, you know, you're, you're going to completely disagree with what I have to say on a lot of these issues today. But I would like you to know if you do come from the gay community, I just want you to know if, if anybody has ever said anything to you or hurt you uh, or maligned you or made fun of you or somehow bullied you because uh, you're gay or there's somebody that you know who was and they called themselves Christians while they did it, I want you to tell you, I believe God's heart broke with yours. And I am so sorry that that was your experience. I think here's the one thing I would like to think we can all agree on this morning, wherever we come on these issues, and that is that every person, every person, needs to be treated with dignity, kindness, and respect, regardless of how they live, regardless of their response to Jesus, regardless of anything. Like Everybody needs to be treated with dignity, kindness, and respect. You know, uh, I started participating in homosexuality, I believe it or not, around the tender age of 11 years old. And... Uh, you know, I don't remember exactly when I first recognized I was same-sex attracted, but around 11, I will tell you as a point of personal history that I was sexually molested by a man uh, when I was 8 years old. How much of a role that would have played, I am not can't say for certain, but around the age of 11 is when I started acting out. And I had a boyfriend for a period of 10 years. And that was a relationship that continued until I was uh, 22 years old. We, we, his name was Carl. He, he and I broke up when I was 22 years old. But I knew through my teen years this was something I had to keep very quiet and hidden. Uh, you know, in the 1970s, mid-1970s, early 1980s, uh, where I was growing up, you know, this was not a cool thing to be. And church was not a good place to talk about this. That was, that was not a safe place. Uh, you know, school was not a safe place to get any, get any help uh, back then for me. Uh, you know, I heard a lot of gay, fagging, queer jokes. And man, home, my dad was a real kind and gentle guy until it came to this issue. And then not so much. And I remember one night my dad actually taking, something came on TV about homosexuality. I remember my dad taking off his shoe and whipping it at the television. And he was like, oh, I hate those people. And I was like, what? My dad? you got to be kidding. My dad's the nicest guy in the world. And now, like, does, I can't even talk to my dad about this. So I remember, you know, as a young guy, uh, you know, um, going to bed at night, sometimes crying myself to sleep, unsure of what it was that I had done to become the center of everybody's hatred, it seemed, in my life. And those were frustrating and difficult years for me. And this is me when I was 19, year, 19 years old. I have a little bit more hair and I'm a little bit thinner there. But um, that wasn't funny. <laughs> <So> <laughs> and uh, anyway, uh, so I had to finally, by the time I was getting to this age, I was like, I'm done with God and church. Forget that stuff, man. It's not that I didn't believe in God. I, it's just that I didn't think God believed in me. And so uh, I moved to Toronto, Canada's largest city, large gay population, and, and uh, broke up with Carl, moved to Toronto, and, and really got involved in the gay life there, and really just started crossing a lot of lines that were not safe for me, and uh, got involved in a lot of anonymous sexual encounters with strangers, and acted out with a lot of different guys, and, and so, uh, you know, I, by the time I was, you know, in my 22, 23 years old, I remember thinking, you know, I don't, this is not probably the healthiest way to live your life. But then I'd acted out hundreds of times with different men. And I thought, you know, I need some help here, but I'm not really sure where to go and what to do here. And then, of course, in God's perfect timing, he sent someone who invited me to church, and it was called the Toronto Church of Christ. And I was kind of skeptical at first, because I know how judgmental all, all Christians can be, obviously. And so I thought, they'll never have me. But I went. I was so amazed by what I saw and heard and loved the message. And I loved the idea of Jesus and forgiveness in heaven. And I was like... You know, maybe this is a good place for me to go after all. So the short story is it took me two years, two years of hearing the message, two years 
of learning about Jesus, two years of hearing the Bible, two years of building relationships with Christians. And finally I got to the place where I was like, okay, I can tell these people who I really am. And so I did. And they were so compassionate and loving and understanding. And, uh, you know, so I studied the Bible over a period of a couple of weeks. And uh, I was baptized on August 15th, 1987. And I can tell you I have not, I have not participated in any kind of homosexual activity since my conversion uh, 29 years ago. So it's been amazing what God's done over the years. And, you know, uh, the, the reality is, is that, um, you know, I'm still same-sex attracted. It hasn't changed. It hasn't even altered. I would have thought after 29 years of Christianity, uh, that would have been something that would have changed by now, but it hasn't. And the truth is, I've gotten off the treadmill of trying to go from being homosexually, or homosexually attracted to becoming heterosexually attracted. I don't think God cares. There's nowhere in the Bible that says you have to be uh, heterosexually attracted to go to heaven. Uh, you know, I think, I think God thinks we're all amazing and incredible. He just wants us to go and do something great with our lives that will honor and glorify Him. We all got different issues and gigs and challenges and difficulties and whatnot. So, you know, I, 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 and I constantly hear over and over again, I think from God that says, you know, God, God, my grace is sufficient for you and my power is made perfect in weakness. And so I just, I just trust we're all good here, you know. One thing I never thought that would happen is that I would get married and have a family. I was like, I guess if I'm going to become a Christian, uh, I'll have to stay single for the rest of my life. Because I was like, I don't know who would marry me. I, I don't even know how that would look. How could a homosexually attracted man and a heterosexually attracted woman have a family, get married? But, you know, that did happen, actually. And there was this Bible discussion group I would go to. And there was a girl there. And every time I went there, you know, we just really hit it off and became great friends. And I enjoyed talking with her. And, and every time I'd go there, she would bake me something. And as you can tell, that would really impress me. And so... You're laughing at all the wrong times, okay? I just want you to know that. <laughs> and uh, anyway, we just became tremendous friends. Kathy and I have been now married for 25 years. It's been the best 10 years of my life. It's been a real, real, real blessing. And I love, I love showing the picture of my family because that's a miracle to me, right? It's a miracle. How is it that a guy could go from acting out with hundreds of men in, in parked cars and public bathrooms and all that kind of crazy stuff become a Christian and, and, and find a wife to be blessed with that and then have a family, you know, I, I'm just so honored. And so that's, that's my miracle. I know you all have your miracles too, but mine's a little bit better. So I'd like to show you my family here. Uh, this is my son, Wyatt. Uh, Wyatt is uh, 21 years old and he's uh, just got out of college. He's roaming the streets. We have no idea what he's going to do with his life, but great kid. This is my daughter, Ellie. Ellie is 23 years old. She's a disciple in the Halifax Church in the campus ministry there. And single brother, she's, uh, she's available. She's not dating anybody right now. And then this is my, that's my son, Greg. Uh, Greg is uh, 19 years old. And uh, Greg is interested only in one thing in life. Literally, only one thing. And that's cars. It's the only thing he's interested in. But it could be a lot worse, so we don't complain about that. And then this is our daughter, Kristen. Kristen is... Uh, She's 19 years old, and thank you, honey. There's four of them, right? Like, it's hard to keep track. And uh, she's 19, and she's really interested in the most important things in life, uh, like uh, makeup and jewelry. So uh, anyway, we adopted uh, Greg and Kristen uh, about 10 years ago. Now, they came to us uh, in a really sad state. Um, you know, unfortunately, those poor kids, by the time they were 9 and 10 years old, had gone through more in life than any child should ever have to go through. And so it was a real honor for us as a family to adopt them and welcome them to our, into our family and give them a safe and loving place and teach them about God. And, and so it's been amazing having them in our family. 
And, uh, you know, over the years, there's been a lot of doctors and therapists and medications. And we had help for the kids, too. So it's been a real uh, amazing experience. Uh, <laughs> so my son, Wyatt, here, eh? he's hilarious. I was telling the group yesterday. He's, I don't know if any of you parents have got a kid who's got the ability to compliment you and slap you at the same time. But he, he's got this great ability. So uh, he came to my office one day a few years ago. I had just gotten back from a trip. And he comes into my office and he says, Hey, Dad, uh, that's a you know, great ministry you're doing there, helping all those people. I really appreciate that. I was like, oh, thanks, son. He goes, yeah, just think. A few years ago, you were a nobody. And now... That's so cool that you thought I was a nobody. Uh, we were, were actually in another region in New York City last year. He was with us on the trip. I can't remember where we were, but somewhere here in the New York City church. So he was with us and he was in the audience. He heard the talk and everything. He comes up to, up to me afterwards. He says, hey, dad, you know what I realized today? I was like, what's that, son? Of course, I'm very nervous about what he's about to say. He says, I realized I'm more proud of you than I am embarrassed of you. <laughs> I was like, oh, well, thank you for admitting that you've been embarrassed of me. That's so, so uh, good to hear. Yeah. So, you know what I thought I'd show you, actually? Well, one of the reasons why I was here last year in New York is because uh, I got a call about a year and a half ago from a guy by the name of Mike Tolliver, who runs a ministry called ICOC Hot News. And they show different, uh, they make up little videos, you know, five, ten minute little bios of different people. And, and you know, to encourage, of what's, encourage us about what's happening around our fellowship of churches around the world. But they contacted me about a year ago and said, hey, we've decided we would like to attempt our very first ever feature length movie. I was like, wow, that's cool. Uh, why are you telling me? He said, well, actually, because we want the movie to be about you. I was like, really? That's really weird. Uh, I said, how long is the movie? They said, 90 minutes. I was like, whoa, God bless us. Like, I don't know who would want to watch a movie about me for 90 minutes. I can't imagine. But anyway, when we were in New York City last year, we actually did some of the filming with the congregational campus event you guys had here. But I thought I'd show you a really, a really brief uh, uh, clip uh, a trailer of the movie. It's coming out in January, February, and the goal is, is that, well, of course, I can't get to every church in our fellowship around the world, but we can get the movie into every church in our fellowship around the world, and uh, that's the goal. Uh, so here's the trailer. I, I don't ever recall actually choosing to be attracted to guys. It's just something I discovered. I heard my friends throw around gay, fag, and queer jokes at school. Through my teen years, I felt very alone. I'd go to bed at night begging God to take this thing away from me. By the age of 24, I had a boyfriend for over 10 years and had had sex countless times with different men, all in a pursuit of trying to find love, find significance, find purpose. I remember feeling so lost and afraid and thinking, would I ever be able to find my way back? <laughs> hey, man. I'm not the one who came up with the title, okay? I'm... And spoiler alert, it works out well, right? Because I'm here, so it's... It's going to be okay. This is our website, strengthandweakness.org. I would really encourage you to check it out. ton of information on there. 
Uh, you know, I think you'd find a lot of encouraging things on there. And if you know someone who's same-sex attracted or dealing with transgender issues or parents who are trying to help their kids, that kind of thing, uh, a wealth of information there. I would encourage you to check it out. Uh, as I said, here's the message I have for Christians who are dealing with stuff like this. But really, this is my message for all of us with whatever your gig is. For the Christian, the opposite of homosexuality is not uh, heterosexuality. It is holiness. And, and I just think God just wants to take us all with whatever our issues and challenges are. And just he just wants us to strive to do the best we can to live a holy life. And, and we're not going to do any of it perfectly. One day God will say, well done, good and faithful servant. Not perfect servant, but faithful servant. And, and so I, my encouragement to Christians is, listen, I don't think God cares what you're attracted to. Become a Christian. There is a place for you in Jesus' church. Jesus is not ashamed or embarrassed of you. His church is not ashamed or embarrassed of you. Uh, and, and, not, and we need you. We need these people in our church. And so uh, that's my message to Christians who are dealing uh, with this kind of stuff. Uh, you know, here's a couple of resources we have available here for you that I think will really encourage you. So if you get one of our books today, uh, it will help us as a ministry financially because we're, we're just surviving off of donations, actually. Uh, donations and people buying our books. So you can either donate to our ministry if you want to do that. Go to our website, strengthandweakness.org, and if you want to give us $20 a month or $500 a month, we'll accept either of those. Uh, and uh, But here's our books, and here's the first book I ever wrote. It's called, uh, I have no idea what it's called until the picture comes up, because I, there it is, Caring Beyond the Margins. I haven't read it yet. I read, I wrote it four years ago. Caring Beyond the Margins, what every Christian needs to know about homosexuality. Really be a good thing for you to have in your library. Uh, talks about, uh, you know, how to share your faith, what, not, what to say, what not to say, uh, that kind of thing. How to help families who are uh, going through this. And Sheridan Wright liked it, so that's a positive thing. You know who he is. Uh, this is a, uh, this just came out. These are six Bible studies. If you ever study the Bible with somebody who's gay or a pro-gay proponent, those are six Bible studies I wrote. There's nothing else like it anywhere in the world, I promise you. Uh, of course, you would continue to follow your, your Bible study protocol that you would have with anybody. Uh, but you would insert these six studies into what you're doing uh, because it answers a lot of questions that uh, gay and transgender people have. And so, uh, you know, that's really cheap. It's just a small little book with six Bible studies, but I think you would find that really helpful and encouraging. Uh, and then I'll let you know about this book here. Uh, it's called Tempt Away. How to Defeat Every Temptation Under 60 Seconds and How to Recover Quickly When You Don't. I recognized about 10 years ago, I wasn't doing a really good job overcoming temptation. I just thought, life is just kind of happening to me here, and I, I just seem to give in a lot. And I thought, I'm not really happy with that. So I came up with a strategy that I could use, that I could initiate all day long, that's quick and easy. And when I, when I started doing it, I thought, this is actually working. And I'll tell you, in the last 10 years since I started living this way, my levels of personal righteousness have skyrocketed. I mean, gone through the roof. Now, I'm not Jesus yet, but it's working really well for me. And I did, a, I did a Bible Jubilee for the Boston church a few years ago. And the elders said, you should write a book about how to overcome temptation. If you know the secret to doing it in 60 seconds, you know, tell us. Because, you know, we would all like to be able to do that. So that's the book. I promise you. I mean, I guarantee you. I'm not kidding. You do what this book says. You will be able to overcome any temptation in under 60 seconds. Guaranteed. It's not a money back guarantee. But I do... I do guarantee it. So anyway, uh, we have all of those books here that are here, here today. As I said, it would really be a big support to our ministry. But I think that you would uh, find them really encouraging too. So oh, go ahead and open your Bibles to uh, John. John chapter uh, 1, verse 10. I'm just going to share a couple of thoughts here as we uh, close out. 
And uh, we're going to be turning there uh, in a second. But I, I wanted to introduce you uh, to a man this morning who has affected your life in many different ways, but chances are you don't even know this guy's name, which is really a shame because his accomplishments has affected all of us in so many different ways. Uh, but his story really is quite remarkable. His name is George Washington Carver. And in 1855, a white slave owner bought a 13-year-old girl named Mary. It's unclear how many children Mary had, but it is known that by her early 20s, due to the, her hard life, as a young slave girl in the Deep South, she lost three children, two in infancy and one of smallpox at the age of 10. Her next child was George. And he was born during the U.S. Civil War. George's father was a slave on a neighboring farm, and he was killed in a logging accident shortly after he was born. Of course, the western border of Missouri was the site of considerable guerrilla warfare, and one day, uh, a bunch of guys, Confederate soldiers, came onto the farm that Mary and George were on, and they took a group of them uh, into uh, captivity for the sake of money, and here they were now living in Arkansas as, uh, as slaves, being kidnapped. And it was during this time, Mary, who was really young in age, but very old, actually, uh, passed away. And so, here we have George Washington Carver, a young kid who grew up in the deep south as a slave with no parents. Not a very auspicious beginning for anyone, is it? However, to make a long story short, George eventually won his freedom. He got his way into school. He received a Bachelor of Science degree from the Iowa Agricultural College in 1894, and he got a Master of Science degree in 1896. And he became a member of the faculty of Iowa State College of Agriculture and Mechanics in charge of the school's bacterial laboratory. And uh, he actually worked on creating agricultural products, and he was able to develop them into... Uh, a lot of different applications that through the years we have become really recipients of his genius. His research, in fact, developed 118 products that we would use pretty much every day. I mean, here's, here's just a few of them. Because of the research and the genius of this guy, we are indebted to him because he, for instance, invented adhesives, bleach, meat tenderizer, shampoo, shaving cream, chili sauce, Refined sugar, synthetic rubber, I like this one, instant coffee, <laughs> talcum powder, wood stains, wood filler. I mean, the list goes on and on. I mean, that's a short list of 118 things that are, re are because of the genius of George Washington Carver. He was honored by U.S. President Franklin Roosevelt. A national park has been named after him. He was bestowed an honorary doctorate from Simpson College. I mean, all of this from a slave who was brought up without parents in the abusive South of the 1800s. And he's gone down in history as one of the greatest minds of science that the world has ever produced. Now, I love stories like this. Someone who beats the odds. Someone who refuses to listen to the critics. Who overcomes unbelievable odds to become something that everyone else thought would be impossible. 
You know, before Walt Disney built the empire that he has today, he was fired by a newspaper editor because, quote, he lacked imagination and had no good ideas. At the age of 22, Oprah Winfrey was fired from her job as a television reporter because she was, quote, unfit for TV. Yet these people, they they started seemingly, you know, they didn't have a lot of talent. Nobody really believed in them. They weren't going to accomplish very much. Yet these people believed that they had the power to become something different than what they were. John chapter 1, starting in verse 10, about Jesus, and he says, He was in the world, and though the world was made through him, the world did not recognize him. He came to that which was his own, but his own did not receive him, verse 12. Yet all who did receive him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. The American Standard Version says, But as to many who received him, to them he gave the power to become the sons of God. You see, God knows all too clearly what I am like. He sees all the sin in my life, all of the hurt, the insecurities, the warts, and all. And it's easy for me when I look at myself of who I am, who I really am before God, When my failures are glaring and naked for him to see, it's easy for me to feel like I'm a failure. I'm washed up. I mean, I'm unable to do doing anything great with my life. I mean, look at how messed up my life has been in the past. I've got all these challenges and issues and weird idiosyncrasies and you know, I was telling the group yesterday, I got all these challenges. Like, I don't like to see feet for some reason. I got a foot thing. I don't know why, but or I don't like my food to touch. My wife has to give me one of those plates with the little dividers on it because I can't right, I can't have my food touch. I, I got issues. I got challenges, you know. I'm overweight and balding and I'm, you know, I got my same-sex attraction issues and I, had a, I got social anxiety disorder. I can't be in crowds, which means today I'm going to be freaked out when I'm with you. But don't take it personally. It's just who I am, right? You're awesome. It's me. It's not you. It's easy for me to feel like, come on, with all these challenges and issues, what can I possibly do? Yet God somehow is able to see me, sin and all, and believe that I can become so much more than who I am now. And when he looks at your life, he sees all of the difficulties, the fears, the mistakes, the insecurities, and he believes that you have the power. In fact, he'll give you the power to become so much more than who you are now and so much more than you ever thought you could be. In fact, God loves you so much and thinks you're so incredible. He would rather have you with all of your difficulties, challenges, weakness, and sin than not have you at all. God wants to do something great with your life. God believes there's so much more to you and I than our mistakes our sins, our failings, and our bad decisions. I mean, the Bible's filled with examples of God longing to make us rich spiritually. When Luke says in chapter 17 that the kingdom of God is within us, what is that but another way of saying that we, you and I, have the power to become 
When Paul says in Philippians that we can do all things through him who gives us strength, what is that but another way of saying that we have the power to become? When John tells us that faith overcomes the world, is he not telling us that we have the power to become Jesus? When he was in the world, always saw potential in people. He saw people as diamonds in the rough, needing only to be refined and polished. And don't think for a moment the potentiality in Jesus as a respecter of persons. Don't ever think that you're overlooked or you're too young. I'm too young. What can I do? Listen, Daniel was just 12 years old when he was taken into captivity. Look what he did. Read the book of Daniel. And don't ever think you're too old. Oh, what's God? This stage of my life, are you kidding? At this season of my life, my best days are behind me. What, what can I do now? I'm 50, I'm 60, I'm 70, I'm 80, whatever. Listen, Moses' work for God began when he was 80. And what a failure. Have you ever thought that you had just sinned too much? You had made too many mistakes. That the mistakes, your sins, or bad decisions that you had made had just hurt too many people. You'd already destroyed too many relationships. You've already caused too much pain. The consequences of your bad decisions have been significant. The sin was so deep and dire. You're like, are you kidding? I'm going to come to church, and I'm going to give, and I'll sing, and I'll clap, and I'll high-five people when I'm there. But come on, it. I've screwed things up so badly by now. You know, what hope is there for me? You know, if you were to take a tour throughout the Old Testament, you would repeatedly see that the featured people of the Bible have prominent dysfunction in their lives. That's not the exception, it's the norm. We talk about these great lives of the Bible, these tremendous heroes... But the thing that amazes me is how many of these great lives were just actually people with really damaged lives. With really serious, real serious family issues. I mean, if you think your family is dysfunctional, all you got to do is look at the lives of these people. I mean, consider the prevailing trend of unhealth among some of the Bible's greats. Cain, the first recorded born human being, murdered his brother. Noah, the last righteous man on earth, was a drunk Abraham, the forefather of the faith, let other men walk off, let other men walk off with his wife. Not just once, but twice. Sarah, the most gorgeous woman by popular opinion, let her husband, in fact, encourage it to sleep with another woman, then hated the other woman for it. Jacob, who wrestled with God, was pretty much a pathological liar. I mean, almost every time you read about Jacob in the Bible, the guy's lying about something. Rachel, who wrote the book on love at first sight, was a nomadic kleptomaniac who stole from her father. Reuben, the pride and firstborn of Jacob, was a pervert who slept with his father's concubine. Aaron, who watched God triumph over Pharaoh, saw the Red Sea miracle, suffered a colossal case of amnesia and formed a wicked idol that led Israel into sin, causing the death of thousands. Saul, the first powerful king of Israel, was apparently 
a psychotic with manic bursts of anger, episodes of deep depression, traces of paranoia, and he committed suicide. David, the friend of God, concealed his adultery by murdering the woman's husband. The prophets, even as they spoke for God, they struggled with issues of impurity, depression. They had unfaithful spouses. They had broken families. And so we might ask ourselves, what is the edification of looking at this list of warped examples? This is only proof that some of the greatest lives of the Bible were also some of the messiest lives of the Bible. It's proof that God can use any of us and desires to, regardless of our failings, mistakes, and sins. Listen, let me tell you something, Christian. You cannot live successfully as a Christian without first learning to live successfully with failure. And I don't understand perfect Christians. Sometimes people walk around thinking, well, I just got this perfection thing going on. Everything's got to be perfect in my life. Well, you should be able to try that at work if you want. Try that at school if you want. But forget that plan when it comes to being a Christian because it's not possible. In fact, it's not even a part of God's plan. Did you know that God actually, no, no, he needs you to sin. Well, you've never heard that from the pulpit before. Because you cannot come into the contact of the blood of Jesus unless you're a sinner. If you're not a sinner, you don't need Jesus. If your life is perfect, you came to the wrong place today. You should have stayed at home and watched TV. No, this is a place for spiritually sick people. For those who don't have it all figured out. For the people whose lives aren't perfect. This is a place for us to go, you know, I don't, I'm a sinner. I'm broken. I'm a mess. I need Jesus in my life. You need the blood of Jesus. Listen. You cannot live successfully as a Christian if you expect your life to be full of success all the time. You've got to learn how to live with failure and do so successfully. Trusting and believing that God's grace is big enough to cover every sin, every failure, and every mistake in your life. God has always had the ability to see people as not as who they were, but who they could be. He saw beneath a fisherman's crude exterior the heart of a flaming evangelist who would preach with such force that he would convert 3,000 people in one day. He saw in the person of a hated tax collector the qualities of loyalty and devotion from which came the book of Matthew, the first book of the New Testament. He saw in the blackened heart of a woman caught in the act of adultery the ability of a woman to change her ways forever. He even saw untold possibilities in the heart of Judas. Who He, however, declined to capitalize on the power to become, but instead became the man who might have been. For all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these, Oh, what might have been. You know, every day, we write another chapter in our lives. We have no power to rewrite yesterday's chapter in what we said or what we did or what we thought. But we have before us a blank sheet that will be filled for today, one way or the other. What are you writing today? 2 Peter 2, 1, 3 to 4, His divine power is giving us everything we need for life and godliness. 
It tells us there that we get to participate in the divine nature of God himself. That's amazing. Listen, God tells you to be holy because you know why? Because you can be holy. God tells you to be pure because you can be pure. He tells you to respect your husband because you can respect your husband. He tells you to love your wife like Jesus loves the church because you can love your wife like that. He tells you to repent of your anger and your gossip because you can. He tells you to repent of lying because you can. He tells you to conquer your moods and your emotions because you can. He tells you to make wiser choices about the people that you hang out with and who you spend time with because you can. He tells you to forgive those people who have hurt you because you can. He tells you to start over every single day because you can. All of this is possible if you're a Christian allowing you to participate in the divine nature of God himself. One thing I don't want anyone ever to say about Guy Hammond's are those words. When you come to my funeral and you're looking over my casket and I promise there'll be good food there. I promise. When you look over my casket, the one thing I never want to hear anyone say about me is, oh, Guy Hammond's. Oh, what might have been? No. Not that I've already tamed all this. Or I've already been made perfect, but I press on to take hold of that which Christ Jesus took hold of me. Brothers, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind, straining towards what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. George Washington Carver, Walt Disney, Oprah Winfrey, all people who from seemingly small beginnings or who made huge mistakes ended up doing amazing things with their lives. How much more for you and I when we are in Christ and Christ is in us and we divine, we participate in the divine nature of God himself. For all sad words of tongue or pen, the saddest are these, what might have been. May those words never be able to be said of you and I. Brothers and sisters here in New York City and Manhattan, we hear all the time of your faith and your courage and the impact you're having. Every time Kathy come and visits you, I can't tell you how incredibly inspiring and encouraging it is for us to not just hear about your faith, but actually get to see it face to face. Thank you for having us this weekend. The power to become. Amen.